You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. The letters Gio received in prison are opened and read, spread out on the bed around her. One by one, she refolds them, tucking the blue paper back into the envelopes they were sent in. She places the letters in a box. She puts the box in her nightstand drawer, the one on the very bottom beside the empty jar. She feels everything and nothing all at the same time. It's easy to get lost in the past, to get buried under the weight and the complexity of the memories she carries with her. The only way to survive it, to have any kind of life despite it, is to compartmentalize it. That chapter in her life all those years ago in high school is best put away in a locked box and shoved into a drawer to be taken out and dissected only when she's forced to. The rest of the time, it's best not to think about it. There is no other way to move forward. It's taking longer than she expected for her life after Hazelwood to feel normal again. Everything seems like a luxury that she doesn't really deserve. Long hot showers, staying up late, sleeping in, Netflix, ordering pizza, credit cards, even the selection of tampons at her local Walgreens is mind-blowing. In prison, there'd been one kind. You bought them in packs of two, and they were terrible. She doesn't enjoy leaving the house. Except for Mrs. Heller, who makes a point of staring at her, the neighbors avoid Geo at all costs. A woman who lives down the block was pushing a stroller on the way to the park that morning, and at the sight of Geo dragging a recycling bin to the curb, she crossed the street, as if she thought Geo would hurt her, or the baby. Christ, did people actually think she was capable of that? But stories get twisted, and the more time that passes, the more they grow. Later that afternoon, someone at the grocery store snapped a picture of her buying a can of baked beans. Beans, for Christ's sake. He wasn't even trying to be discreet about it. He whipped out his phone and took her picture. His Facebook post for the day, no doubt. Gio's back at home now, wrapped in her mom's old sofa blanket, which is stained and worn in several places, but which her dad can't bear to throw away. The TV is on, and she has the volume turned up loud in an attempt to distract herself from her own thoughts. She knows she's lonely, and the irony isn't lost on her. In prison, she had friends. Her appointment book at the hair salon was always full. People were happy to see her, to talk to her, and there was laughter and conversation. She felt useful. Now, her fancy smartphone never rings, and the only emails she receives are from Domino's about the day's pizza specials. She has all the freedom in the world and can't enjoy it. It's the ultimate punishment. But Kat would be out soon, and things would get better. They had to. She contacted six hair salons that morning, all of which had advertised on the Emerald Beauty Academy's website that they were hiring new stylists. Geo had renewed her cosmetology license while at Hazelwood. Upon giving her name and asking politely to speak to the manager, two salons had hung up on her. Another two said the positions were filled and they were no longer hiring. The last two invited her in for an interview, presumably because they didn't know who she was. But they did once she arrived. The first manager, blanching at the sight of Gio's face, asked her to leave. At the second place, the owner of the salon stared at her incredulously. 
You're kidding, right? I don't care how good you are with hair. I don't want my clients around you with sharp objects. I could answer phones, sweep up hair, prove myself. I'm sorry, but no. The woman about Gio's age shook her head. I'm a small business owner and I can't afford the bad publicity. Gio thanked her for her time and turned to leave. You don't remember me, do you? The woman said when Gio's hand was on the door. I went to high school with you and Angela. Gio turned around slowly. Nearby, the receptionist messed around on the computer, pretending not to listen even though she so obviously was. I'm Tess DeMarco, the owner said. I was on the cheer team at St. Martin's. Gio blinked, surprised. In high school, Tess had been brunette and very slender. Now she was blonde and heavyset. But her eyes, full of accusation and judgment, were the same. It's funny, Tess said, walking closer to her. When Angela went missing, I thought that maybe you did something to her. Because your fight at cheer practice the week before she disappeared was so ugly. I remember your face as she screamed at you in front of everyone. You were furious and so embarrassed. But then you guys made up and everything went back to normal. And I thought, nah, you could never have hurt her. I actually felt bad for thinking it. But I was right in the end, wasn't I? Gio said nothing. I believe in karma, Tess whispered. And the fact that you're still here and Angela isn't means that yours is still coming. Now get out of my salon, Georgina, and never ever come back here. She held the door open and continued watching through the glass as Gio made her way to her car. It's not surprising Tess remembers Angela as this perfect person. Angela Wong could be as bright as the sun, and when she shined her light on you, nothing could make you feel more special, more important, more valued. But when she withheld it, which she often did over petty things, it could cast you into darkness. There was no in-between. Angela felt everything fully, and if you were close to her, you felt everything she felt. The only other person who could possibly understand this was Kaiser. He's the only person who loved Angela the same way she did, who felt the loss of her the same way she did. But unlike Gio, he didn't find out until years later what happened to her. He was almost driven mad by the not knowing. Gio was driven mad by the knowing. She must have fallen asleep on the sofa because when the doorbell rings and wakes her up, a full hour has passed. She answers the door, still wrapped in the blanket. It's Kaiser, and he looks about as exhausted as she feels. He's wearing his badge, which means he's on duty. Come in, she says, moving aside so he can enter. I should have called first, he says, closing the door behind him. I was in the area, doing some follow-up work in the woods. Saw your car. Anything new? He shakes his head, frustration etched on his face. No, nothing. The lead we had on Calvin didn't pan out. I feel like I'm missing something obvious and it's driving me crazy. Something I can't see that's right in front of me. Gio is standing in front of him. She looks up and their eyes meet. He's wearing the same cologne, the one that's mildly spicy sweet, and again it makes her hyper aware of how long it's been since she's made love to someone. Prison sex doesn't count. I'm glad to see you, she says, and she is. I wish... What? Nothing. She takes a seat on the sofa, lets the blanket slide off her shoulders. 
She's wearing a t-shirt and sweatpants, her go-to outfit now that she has nowhere special to be. He takes a seat on the other end, watching her. There's something I was going to tell you the other day, Kaiser says, about the double homicide I'm working, about the little boy. I remember, what is it? The boy is, was, the female victim's son. Gio frowns. I don't understand. I saw his parents on the news. They were giving a press conference about it. His mother was grieving, but she's alive. She's his adoptive mother. The woman the boy was found with, she was his biological mother. A long silence falls between them as Gio processes this, and she becomes acutely aware of the different compartments inside her, each reacting differently to this revelation. The compartments bang against each other like metal on metal, screeching and clanking and noisy, although outwardly she shows no sign of the turmoil she's feeling inside. That's not all, Kaiser says. The biological father is Calvin James. The clanking inside her stops. Inwardly and outwardly, Gio is still. I didn't tell you earlier because we're not releasing any of this to the press, not until we know for sure what it means, Kaiser says. I haven't even told the Bowens, the little boy's parents, and I won't until we have proof Calvin killed them. Why are you telling me? She asks. Because I don't know who else to tell, he says. You're the only person I know who knew Calvin intimately and is still alive. She closes her eyes, lets out a long breath, then opens them again. So what is it you want to know? Whether or not I think Calvin is capable of killing his own child? You don't think that's possible? Kaiser's eyes never leave her face. You knew him better than anyone. You've seen firsthand what he's capable of. Nineteen years is plenty of time to grow into a monster. Gio lets out a laugh, but there's not a speck of humor in it. Oh, Kai, Calvin didn't grow into a monster. Calvin was always a monster. I just didn't see it back then. She's never felt so small, so alone. She doesn't remember feeling this way in prison, surrounded by the chatter, the voices of women, the presence of other people who were stuck in that box with her. She understood that it was her place to be there, and for five years she made it work because she had to. There was comfort in always knowing where the walls were. She felt safe, not at first maybe, but eventually. Here, untethered, unanchored, she is terrified. She says none of this to Kaiser, but he seems to sense her thoughts. He reaches for her hand, his palm warm and pressing gently, his face full of compassion. It's taken her a while, but she can once again see the boy she used to know, the one who had loved her with his whole heart just the way she was, and who expected nothing in return but her friendship, although he'd made it clear once that he wished for more. Before she can stop herself, she leans over and kisses him. Startled, he tries to back away, but the arm of the sofa is blocking him, and there's nowhere for him to go unless he stands up. But he doesn't stand up. Instead, he kisses her back, forcefully and urgently, one hand in her hair, the other cupping her face. And it feels like it did the night of Chad Fenton's party, when they were alone in the laundry room. Had Gio made a different choice that night? Had she said yes to Kaiser instead of pushing him away? None of what happened afterward would have transpired. She might not have gone to Calvin's. 
and Angela might still be alive. Kaiser kisses her mouth, her neck, the soft spot behind her ears, and then her lips again. She responds, pressing against him, unable to get close enough. Her hand slips under his shirt, undoing his belt. His hand is fumbling with her bra, and then her shirt is off, the bra along with it, and his mouth finds her nipples. She's so aroused that it almost hurts. Every inch of her wants every part of him. His kisses are a hair shy of rough. His hands move everywhere, and then impatient, he stands her up, yanking her sweatpants down to the floor. The living room window is right there, but she doesn't care. Fuck the neighbors, let them see. He buries his face in the crotch of her panties, and a guttural groan escapes her lips. Then he slips a hand inside. It feels so good, she almost orgasms right then. After a moment, she forces herself to pull back. She has to be sure that he's sure. She doesn't want to trick him. She's tired of deceiving people, of trying to pretend she's someone she isn't, of trying to pretend she's good. You know I'm not a good person, right? She says. I need to make sure you know that before we do anything, before it goes any further. I've hurt people, Kai. I've done terrible things. I know. Kaiser says, I know, but you're all I can see, Georgina. You're all I could ever see. They're upstairs in her childhood bedroom, and the door is closed even though they're alone in the house. The afternoon sun is bright, spilling into the bedroom in pink beams through the sheer lace curtains. There are no window blinds to close. Everything is lit up. Everything is exposed. She lies on the bed as he tugs her panties off, taking his time, sliding them over her hips and then over her thighs and ankles, making her wait. The rest of her is already undressed. He pauses, his eyes feasting on her nakedness. She allows her legs to fall open slightly, letting him see everything he wants to see, bearing it all, for once. His face is flushed with arousal, and then he smiles, it's not a love smile. It's a smile of genuine amusement, and the sight of it alarms her. What's the matter? She asks, propping herself up on her elbows, suddenly anxious. Do I not look how you thought? Kaiser's grin widens. No, that's the thing. You look better. But it occurred to me that if this had happened at 16, and you have no idea how much I wished it would, I'd have come in my pants already. Relieved, she laughs. It's okay if you do. Fuck that, he says. I'm a grown-up now, Georgina. Let me show you. He pulls off his shirt, then his jeans, then his boxer briefs. He doesn't look anything like how she thought, but then she had never really thought about it back then. He had no expectations to meet. Nevertheless, he is beautiful. He's hard, and he's ready. Kaiser enters her, slowly but not gently, and she is transported. An hour after he leaves, his smell is still on the sheets, and Geo sinks into them. The first prickles of self-doubt are beginning to creep in. She's an ex-con. Kaiser's a cop. How can this be anything more than what it was? An afternoon sex romp.
He probably doesn't even see her as anyone other than the girl he could never have in high school. Now that it's out of his system, she'll probably never hear from him again. Cops have a hero complex, don't they? They need someone to save. Or in Gio's case, redeem. Except, it doesn't feel that way for her. Being with Kaiser makes her feel like she's exactly where she's supposed to be. And she hasn't felt that way since Angela died. Rolling over, she reaches into the bottom drawer of her nightstand and pulls out the empty mason jar. She sets it on the table, staring at the flecks of sunlight that hit it at different angles, remembering. The night of the murder, she didn't get back to her house until four o'clock in the morning. Her dad was working in overnight and nobody was home. Every single house in the neighborhood was dark and there were no streetlights. She hadn't been able to look at Calvin, the both of them covered in dirt and blood, his hands raw from all the shoveling. His Trans Am's interior light flicked on when he opened his car door, a soft, repetitive beep emanating from the dashboard because the keys were in the ignition. Georgina, he said, but she turned away before he could finish. She let herself in the house and dragged herself up the stairs, every muscle in her body feeling like it had been run over by a truck. Her stomach still felt queasy from the alcohol, and now that the panic-induced adrenaline was fading, she couldn't stop shaking. She was so cold. Her little dress, which seemed like the right choice for Chad's party, seemed utterly silly now. It was covered with dirt, grass, bits of bark and leaves, and blood. So much blood. She peeled it off in the bathroom, letting it drop onto the bath mat. With the faucet cranked as hot as it would go, she stepped into the near scalding spray, as if the water could somehow wash away the horrible thing she and Calvin had done. Because yes, this was her fault as much as Calvin's. He was right. She had brought Angela to him. The dirt and dried blood from her hands rinsed onto the bathtub floor in dark brown streaks. The dirt they'd thrown over Angela's body, over Angela's face. How could she have let this happen? She knew Calvin was violent. He'd been violent with her, and she'd seen him threaten other guys in bars. She'd seen the way he was looking at Angela all night, simultaneously disgusted and turned on by her lascivious behavior. Her boyfriend had raped her best friend. Maybe Angela had gone too far with the dancing and the flirting, and maybe she'd even kissed him. Gio didn't know. She was passed out drunk. She had no way of knowing how it started. But she sure as shit knew how it ended. At some point, Angela wanted it to stop. She said no. Gio had seen her mouth form the word from across the room. There was no way Calvin didn't hear it. And Gio had done nothing to help her. She stayed in the shower until the water began to cool. Back in her room, she changed into sweats and buried herself under the covers. Somehow she fell asleep, waking the next morning to the sound of the phone ringing. She opened a bleary eye to where the cordless phone sat on her night table and saw Angela's home number on the call display. Automatically, she reached for the phone, and then her hand froze. Because it couldn't be Angela calling. Angela is dead. She sat up, watching the phone ring, and then ring some more. The call display flashed. Outside, her dad was home, mowing the lawn, and in an hour, he would come upstairs, have a shower, and try and sleep for a few hours. That's what he did after an overnight on Friday.
The entire world was continuing on like normal, except for one thing. Angela is dead. She picked up the receiver slowly. Hello? Georgina, it's Candace Wong. Angela's mother's voice was brisk. Sorry if I woke you, honey. Can I speak to Angie? She's... Geo swallowed. She's not here, Mrs. Wong. Oh? The woman paused. I assumed she was still with you since she stayed over last night. Geo took a breath. She had to tell her. She had to tell Mrs. Wong what happened, that Angela was dead. How could she not tell her? Mrs. Wong misread her hesitation. You can tell me, dear. She should have called us last night once she got to your place. Victor was up playing poker until 2 a.m. You think he would have noticed his only daughter didn't come home. She sounded cross, but not at Angela. Candace Wong would never be cross with her daughter again. Gio's heart was pounding, and so was her head. Her stomach felt like she swallowed something horribly acidic. It was churning, sending a rippling, burning pain throughout her abdomen. I... Actually, she didn't stay over last night. I last saw her at Chad's. She closed her eyes. She had just told the first and most significant lie that she would ever tell. Chad Fenton? Mrs. Wong said. Oh, right, she did say something about a party last night. You girls didn't leave together? You weren't with Kaiser? Tell her, tell her now. We did leave together, but neither of us went home. No, she, we. Geo took a breath, her thoughts spinning. I left early, I wasn't feeling well. I walked home. Angela and Kai were still at the party when I left. The words were falling out of her mouth and she couldn't stop them. Her car must still be at Chad's then, Mrs. Wong sounded pissed off. Honestly, Georgina, I wasn't too happy when her father bought her that car. She's spoiled enough as it is. Were you girls drinking last night? We were drinking. I ate the fruit. I got drunk. I passed out. A little. A sigh on the other end of the line. Well, there's no point in lecturing you on underage drinking. That's your father's job. At least you girls had the good sense not to get behind the wheel of a car, but Angie is so grounded when she gets home. She's in big trouble now. Yes, she is, Mrs. Wong, the worst kind. She's never coming home, ever. I play tennis with Chad's mother, Mrs. Wong said, her voice dropping conspiratorially. Rosemary's a bit of a flake, and I know her husband's an alcoholic. They keep their damn liquor cabinet unlocked, and I know the older son, the dropout, drinks too. I'll give her a call. Another sigh, impatient this time. In the meantime, Georgina, can you call around a bit? You'd know better than me where she's likely to have ended up. If you talk to her, tell her to get her butt home. I'm going to call Kaiser's house next, but if she spent the night at a boy's house, she's in big trouble. She's in the woods, Mrs. Wong, buried in the dirt. Geo squeezed her eyes shut. She had to tell the truth. It was the very least she could do, and this was her opportunity to come clean before she told any more lies, before they found out the horrible thing that happened. It was now or never. Fucking tell her. But the words wouldn't come. Instead, Gio heard herself say, I can call around. If I catch up with her, I'll tell her to call home. Whoever said lying was hard was so, so wrong. Lying was easy. 
Lying was like a hot knife slicing through room temperature butter. Lying was a bunch of words strung together in a pretty sentence designed to make the other person feel like everything was fine. Telling the truth, however, was impossible. They said their goodbyes and hung up. Gio's leather day timer, containing the phone numbers of all her friends, was sitting on her nightstand. She would have to call them all, ask if they'd seen or heard from Angela, ask if they knew where she might be. Because that's what liars did. They lied. And then they lied some more to protect those lies. She got up off the bed, looking down when she felt something small and pebble-like underneath her foot. It was a cinnamon heart candy, an escapee from the near-empty jar on her bedside table, the gift from Calvin. Looking down, it resembled a little splotch of blood on the cream-colored carpet. Her stomach turned. She was not going to make it to the bathroom. She reached for her small trash can and threw up into it, heaving painfully as there wasn't much left in her stomach after vomiting the night before. Clutching the can, she made her way down the hall to the bathroom. She was horrified to find her dress on the bath mat, lying in a crumpled heap where she'd left it. She snatched it up. Through the bathroom window, she could hear the lawnmower still going strong. Her dad was doing the backyard now. He'd be out there for another 20 minutes. She stuffed the dress and bath mat into the trash can on top of the vomit and headed downstairs to the kitchen, making a beeline for the door to the garage. The cement floor was cold and dusty under her bare feet as she stuffed the trash can into the larger blue bin, piling other garbage bags on top of it. Then she headed back to her room to call her friends, exactly as she'd promised Candace Wong she would do. It wasn't like she had made one monstrous decision to lie. It was a series of small decisions and a series of small lies, but together they were growing into a mountain. The police rang the doorbell shortly after dinner. Gio's knees went weak at the sight of the two uniformed officers. She led them into the living room to where her father was finishing up the pizza they'd ordered. Walter knew Angela's mother had called earlier and was concerned, but he also knew his daughter's best friend had a reputation for being a bit of a party girl. His theory was that Angela had met a boy she hadn't told her parents about, and Gio hadn't said anything to the contrary. As she spoke to the officers, Gio kept calm, but on the inside she was screaming. If the cops suspected anything, she would tell the truth. She would. I got drunk last night, she said to them. She didn't have to look at her father to know that his face would be a mask of shock and disapproval. He'd never known her to drink because she hardly ever had. I didn't mean to, but I hadn't had anything to eat since lunch, and there was fruit at the bottom of the punch barrel. You never eat the fruit, one of the cops said, the younger of the two. He wore a rueful smile, and his name tag read Vaughn. I learned that the hard way. The other cop, only slightly older, glared at him. His name tag read Torrance. If there was ever a good cop, bad cop situation, this was it, and these two were perfectly cast. Torrance was the ass. Vaughn was the one who was nice to you and got you talking. Keep going, Officer Torrance said to her. I didn't feel well. I wanted to go home, so I went to find Ange. We'd gone to Chad's together after the game. She was with Mike Bennett, and they were close. She'd had a bit to drink, too. She seemed comfortable where she was, so I said goodbye and headed out. You're only 16, 
Torrance said, his face like stone. You girls drink often? Not at all, Geo said, feeling a bit defensive despite the fact that she had no right to be. Her father's lips were pressed into a thin line. He wasn't impressed. I don't even like alcohol, and Ange only drinks if absolutely everybody else is. She's not the kind of girl who needs to drink to have a good time. Keep going, Torrance said. That's it. I ran into my friend Kaiser on the way out, and we talked for a few minutes. Then I walked home by myself, was home before midnight. I was feeling pretty terrible. I got sick before I went to bed. She couldn't help but think about her dress, currently covered in last night's evidence, stuffed into a vomit-filled trash can inside the garbage bin in the garage. Maybe the cops would sense something fishy about her story, demand to see what she was wearing last night. Maybe they'd find the dress in the garage. If they did, she would tell the truth. But they didn't ask. They didn't seem suspicious at all. They questioned her father instead, who confirmed, somewhat guiltily, that he'd worked all night at the hospital and wasn't aware that his daughter had come home drunk. And you said the last time you saw Angela, she was with Mike Bennett at Chad Fenton's house? The younger officer asked. Yes. She wondered if he was repeating the question to try and trap her in a lie. She had left Chad's alone. Kaiser, if asked, could vouch for that, along with a dozen other people. But surely someone had seen Angela leave a few minutes later and catch up to Gio on the street. If someone did and they asked her about it, she would tell the truth. But again, they didn't ask. Instead, the older officer said, Angela have a boyfriend her parents don't know about? She ever say anything to you about running away? Is that what they thought? That was the direction they were going in? Gio glanced at her father, who seemed mildly triumphant that they were echoing his own theory. If she has a boyfriend other than Mike, she didn't say anything to me, she said, and it was the first completely truthful thing she'd offered all day. As for the running away, I don't know how many friends of hers you've talked to already, but Ange has a lot going for her. I think running away is for people who don't like their lives. Ange loved hers. Well, I think that's all we need, Torrance said, standing up. Officer Vaughn followed. If you think of anything else, give me a call. He left his card on the coffee table, shook hands with her father, and left. Gio locked the door behind them, knowing she was about to get a lecture about the drinking. Which was fine, and she wasn't planning to argue. She had no desire to be anywhere but home anyway. So, how long am I grounded for? She asked her father before he could say anything. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Walt said wearily, dropping onto the sofa. Have I ever grounded you before? No. He rubbed his face with his hands. You shouldn't be drinking. And even more than that, you shouldn't be walking home late at night. There are a lot of creeps out there. I know. I'm one of them. The neighborhood is safe, Dad. That's not the point, he said. Ever since your mom died, it's just been you and me. And I work a lot, which means you're alone a lot. It's fine. It's not fine, goddammit, he said. You're 16. You're still supposed to need me for things, to be able to count on me, to be able to call me when you need a ride home. It's not okay that you left a party drunk and felt you had no way to get home other than to walk 10 blocks at close to midnight. Yes, we live in a safe neighborhood, but there's still a lot of sickos out there. You should have called me. More important, you should feel like you can. 
But you were working. Geo could see that he was upset. God, if he only knew. The most important job I have is here, at home, Walt said, standing up. I have enough seniority at the hospital that I don't have to do those overnights anymore. I agree to those shifts because they pay better. But it takes time away from you. It means I'm eating dinner in a cafeteria by myself and you're eating at home by yourself, and that's stupid. You're the most important person in my life and I ought to start acting like it. This is a wake-up call for both of us, do you understand? Her father misinterpreted the look on her face and offered her a smile. Don't worry, I don't plan to smother you. We both need our space. But I should be able to pick you up from somewhere until we can get you a car of your own. I should be home for dinner most nights. His body sagged. What if it were you who was missing? What if one night you didn't come home? You're all I have, Georgina. Angela's parents? I know how they don't spend any time with her. And now look, nobody knows where she is. I can't even imagine. I'm sure she'll be back. The lie stuck in Gio's throat. She almost choked on it. The cops questioned everyone who was at the party, but Mike Bennett got the worst of it. The St. Martin's High School quarterback was hauled down to the precinct and held for 24 hours. His parents had to hire a lawyer. Everybody who was at the party, at least a 100 kids over the course of the night, corroborated Gio's statement that Angela had spent most of her time with Mike. He admitted that Angela left him at Chad's at some point during the night and that he had caught a ride home with his buddy Troy Sherman, the St. Martin's Bulldogs wide receiver. Troy had crashed at Mike's house after they'd had a couple more beers, both of them falling asleep after watching a video of their last football game. He hotly denied that they had a homosexual relationship, refusing to admit it even when the cops strongly suggested that he could avoid arrest if he were honest. Mike's parents threatened to sue if the cops didn't quit with that line of questioning, as their son was currently being scouted by several college teams. With no other proof, the police let him go. Mike Bennett, so deep in the closet he was practically in Narnia, was overheard telling a couple of the guys in the locker room on Monday morning that he wouldn't be surprised if Angela had run off to become a porn star. Never knew a girl who loved sex as much as she did. That cheerleader thing? It's all an act, he said. She was into some kinky stuff. Of course, he'd refused to elaborate on what kind of kinky stuff, but of all the rumors that would sprout in the coming weeks... This was the one that upset Gio the most. Sure, Angela had done some stuff with Mike, but not that much because, hello, Mike was gay. He was lying to cover his own ass. On more than one occasion, Gio had been tempted to confront him. But she couldn't. And the hypocrisy of calling Mike Bennett a liar wasn't lost on her. Angela Wong's disappearance was both big news and big gossip. People who didn't know anything about what happened were suddenly sure they had seen her places she'd never been with people she didn't even know. The conversation was ongoing, happening in every classroom, every period across St. Martin's High School, whether the kids knew her or not. And the more the kids talked, the more the stories grew, growing so ridiculous that Gio would have laughed had she not known the truth. I heard she was last seen near the 7-Eleven. Testa Marco said to Gio during their fourth period calculus class, and that she boarded a bus to San Francisco and is staying with some older guy. I bet she's back within a week. She just wants to freak her parents out and cause drama. 
Oh, so you're talking to me now? Gio snapped, recalling the other girl's eagerness to get her kicked off the squad. Had that only been last week? What? We've always been friends. Tess blinked, feigning ignorance. For a girl who'd wanted to be Angela's best friend, she hadn't wasted any time cozying up to Mike Bennett in the cafeteria during lunch. And he was only too happy to have another girl on his arm to play the role Angela used to. Lauren Benedict, also on the cheer team, piped up. Seriously, guys? What if something bad happened to her? What if she found out Mike was gay and he killed her? She could be buried in a ditch somewhere. Mike Bennett is not gay, Tess said, her cheeks flushing. Don't talk about shit you don't know, Lauren. Gio shook her head and buried herself in her calculus textbook. She only wanted to go home. It had taken every ounce of energy she had to get herself to school that morning. Shut up, both of you. For real. It had only been three days, but the weight of the lies was taking its toll. Gio couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. Angela's mother had called half a dozen times, wanting to know if Gio had heard anything new from her friends at school. The phone calls were torture, and after every one, she felt even worse. After the last call, she ran to the bathroom and threw up the chicken pot pie her father nuked for dinner. Walt chalked it up to anxiety over her missing best friend. And of course it was, but not in the way he or anyone else thought. Gio kept expecting the cops to barge in and arrest her. She couldn't imagine how she'd get through another day at school pretending to be just as confused and concerned as everybody else. Exhaustion overtook her on the fourth night, and she finally fell asleep, only to wake up from a nightmare, her hair plastered to her sweaty face. You, the older cop had shouted in her dream. She was in the cafeteria, and everybody was staring at her as the two police officers entered, pointing their guns and waving their badges. You're the reason she's covered in dirt, rotting. You, you. She cried into her pillow, a full-body sob that racked her from head to toe. She had to say something. She couldn't live like this, and it sure as hell wasn't fair to Angela's family. At the very least, Gio knew she had to tell her father. He would know what to do, but the thought tied her stomach in knots. She hated to disappoint her dad, and yet she knew his disappointment would be the least of what he felt once he found out what she'd helped do. The clock read 1 a.m., Walt was long asleep, his bedroom door shut, the volume on his white noise machine turned all the way up. First thing in the morning, she would confess all to her father, and they would go down to the police station together. Yes, it would ruin her life, but at least she had a life to ruin. Angela didn't. Her best friend never had a choice. Tomorrow. She would come clean tomorrow. The decision made, Gio managed to fall back asleep, only to be woken up again an hour later by a knock on her bedroom window. The sound startled her and she turned over in bed. At the sight of Calvin's face through the glass, her insides froze. They hadn't spoken to each other since it happened, and she was starting to let herself believe that the next time they faced each other, one or both of them would be in handcuffs. She got out of bed. She was wearing an old pair of sweatpants and a t-shirt with a hole in the armpit. Her face was shiny, her hair twisted into a messy knot at the top of her head. She had three zits on her chin from stress. Calvin had never seen her looking anything less than put together, but she didn't care now. 
They'd already seen each other doing the worst thing they'd ever done. Greasy hair and a few pimples would have no impact on that. She opened the window and he climbed in, dragging with him a duffel bag that looked stuffed to the gills. Where's your car, she asked, concerned that his bright red Trans Am was parked out front for all the neighbors to see. Sold it. She didn't ask why. She didn't care. He took a seat on the edge of her bed, dropped his bag on the floor, and reached for the jar of cinnamon hearts on her nightstand. There were only a handful left, and he shook out what remained, started popping them into his mouth. The jar was finally empty. Have you been? He gave her the once over, raising an eyebrow at her baggy sweats, the messy hair. You look like shit. I feel even worse than that. Well, don't, he said. There's nothing you can do about it now. I'm telling my father tomorrow, Gio said. It's only a matter of time before the cops figure it out anyway. No, they won't. Calvin reached for her hand and squeezed. She tried to jerk it away, but he wouldn't let go. If they knew anything, if they suspected, they would have arrested us by now. Nobody will find out so long as we keep quiet. I'm sick inside, she said, staring at him. Aren't you? How do you sleep? How do you eat? I'm barely functioning. He let her hand go, ran his fingers through his hair. Then don't think about it. How can I not? Gio's voice was small. You killed her. You killed her too, he said. Her head snapped up. No, I didn't. How can you even say that? By law, it's the same thing. You helped me move her body. You helped me cover it up. You lied to the cops. Calvin's tone was soft, matter of fact, all-knowing. If this ever gets out, you'll be just as guilty as me. So you're taking off, she said, gesturing to his duffel bag. That's what you've come to tell me? They're still investigating. They're still asking questions. I can't, I can't keep lying to everyone. I can't keep lying to her mom. You don't have to lie. Just don't say anything. He met her gaze with a steady one of his own. On the surface, he looked the same as he always did. Handsome, relaxed, confident. But there was something new beneath the surface. Something she'd caught glimpses of whenever they'd argue. Something that would peek out for a brief moment and then scoot back into its hiding place. Whatever it was, it wasn't hiding now. She sensed it. She could feel it staring at her, watching her from someplace inside him. I love you, Calvin said. That hasn't changed. You could come with me. The words made her stomach churn. Whatever he felt for her, it couldn't be how love was supposed to feel. What they had was something fucked up, something poisonous, something that would kill her if she didn't get as far away from it as possible. I can't, she said. I have to finish school, and I can't leave my dad. He nodded. I know, but I thought I'd ask anyway. He leaned in and kissed her. Her stomach turned and she tried to move her face away, but he grabbed it in both hands and kissed her more deeply. He had a cinnamon heart in his mouth. She could feel its hard knobbiness rolling around on his tongue. Sweet and hot and spicy all at the same time. A familiar taste, and it now made her sick. Stop, she said, but he didn't.
He pushed her back on the bed and rolled on top of her, 180 pounds of lean muscle pinning her down. It wasn't much different from when he'd kiss her after a bad fight, when he'd try to win her back after slapping or pinching or punching her. So she lay still while he kissed her passionately, knowing from past experience that squirming and protesting would only make him feel angry and rejected. If she lay still and let him touch her, he'd eventually see that she wasn't into it and stop. His hot breath was sickly, spicy sweet as he kissed her neck, her ears, and her shoulders, working his way down, pulling her T-shirt up. When he flicked her nipple with his tongue, she whimpered. It was so wrong, so incredibly, terribly wrong. But it did feel a little bit good, too. As horrible as it all was, she couldn't deny her attraction to him. It was Calvin, after all, and this was their pattern. Plus, he was the only person in the world right now she didn't have to lie to. And she still loved him. God help her. Feelings like that did not evaporate in a matter of days, much as she wished they would, much as she knew they should. She didn't protest when he pulled her sweatpants down, or when he moved her panties to the side so he could find her wet spots and make them even wetter, the cool spice of the cinnamon on his tongue adding a layer of deliciousness that made her gasp. She was disgusted with herself, but unable to help it. He had touched her like this so many times before, and he knew exactly what to do, exactly where to apply pressure, exactly where to apply pressure and for how long. When she heard the sound of his belt unbuckling, her eyes opened. They had never had sex before. Not real sex, as she thought of it, not intercourse. She was a virgin, and she pushed his hand away, trying to sit up on the bed. We can't, she said. Calvin, please, you have to go. He grinned, his teeth shining in the dim light of her bedroom. Remember how I always told you we would wait until the right time, he said, unzipping his jeans. His erection was obvious through his briefs, and he massaged himself through the thin material, never taking his eyes off her. This is the right time, Georgina. I won't see you again after tonight. I want to be the first man that's ever been inside you. No, Gio said. I don't want to, okay? Please. He was on top of her before she could continue, and the weight of him felt heavier and more forceful now. One hand pinned her arms down over her head. The other spread her legs open wider, pulling down her panties. She was wet from his earlier touch, but she didn't want to be touched anymore. She didn't want this to go any further. She wanted this to stop. She wrangled an arm free and thumped him on the back. Calvin, please, I don't wanna- I'm going to be your first, Georgina, so you don't ever forget me. His penis entered her, suddenly and forcefully. The pain was searing and intense. She cried out and he put a hand over her mouth, continuing to thrust inside her, going deeper, and it hurt more than she ever imagined it would. She clawed at his back, her short fingernails ineffectual as she tried to scratch him. This was not the Calvin she thought she knew, who'd always been gentle with her sexually, who took pride in pleasing her. This wasn't sex at all, was it? This was something else entirely. This was dominance. This was taking something he wanted that she didn't want to give. This was rape. Stop, she whimpered when the hand covering her mouth slipped a little. Please. Stop. He heard her, of course he did. 
But Calvin was in his own world, where the only thing that mattered to him was what he wanted, what he needed. Nothing else existed. Eventually, Gio went limp, letting her arms rest on the mattress. There seemed to be no point in fighting. Fighting made it hurt more. Fighting made it worse. Karma had come for her, and it was terrible. He left the same way he came in, through the window. Gio never saw him again after that night. Not until years later. Not until the trial. Kaiser had asked her the other day if she ever worried about Calvin coming back for her. She'd told him that she wasn't concerned, which was true. Calvin had already taken the best part of her the night she'd watched him rape and murder her best friend. What was left, he took the night he raped her in her own bedroom, with her father sleeping right down the hall. Gio stares at the empty mason jar on the nightstand now, the one that used to contain all her innocence, all her goodness. She'd kept it all this time. A therapist might have a field day trying to analyze why she had never thrown it away, and more important, why she'd kept it in a spot in her bedroom where she could clearly see it. The answer was simple. It was punishment for what she'd done to Angela. And a reminder of her own trauma, her own pain, which she'd brought on herself for being so young and so stupid. Her phone pings. Gio checks the text message, her heart lifting a little when she sees it's from Kaiser. A small smile crosses her lips. Maybe it can work out between them, as long as she never tells him the whole story. No one, not even Kaiser, could love her if they knew the whole story. Her face falls when she sees what he's sent her. Two more bodies found in the woods behind St. Martin's. Adult female and a child, killed same way as the first two. A second message follows a few seconds later. Calvin's spotted in town. Stay inside. Lock the doors. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait... You can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold.